Please take your Bibles with me this evening and turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. We will not be stepping into our time in 1 Thessalonians till the application this evening. I've said this a couple of times now. Uh, we're in a, a fairly teachy series right now, a little bit beyond even what, what is normal as it's, it's a bit more topical. I desire to go through the end times events. It's something that we need to have on our minds. However, we're, we're not walking through passages as systematically as we normally would on a Sunday night. And uh, so I, I hope this will be clear, and I hope it will help you as we continue speaking about the rapture of the church. I'd like us to be aware of a very unique, we might say, handicap that you and I have as Christians in Western culture. This morning in, in Sunday school, we talked about um, some unique elements of being a Christian in particularly the United States. And one of those elements is that we are, the United States, we have a built-in um, rebellious streak in us uh, as, as Americans. It, it's it's kind of what we are. We, we're rebels by nature. Uh, we, we were talking about, in Genesis 16, about Hagar and God's command to Hagar to go and submit herself to Sarai, Abram's wife, after uh, the circumstances whereby Hagar became pregnant with Ishmael. Um, at Sarah's suggestion, actually. Uh, and as we were talking about submission and the expectations that God has placed upon us to submit to one another, to submit to our government, to submit to our employees, uh, excuse me, employers, to submit to our uh, to wives, to submit to husbands, for us all to submit one to another, we were saying how submission is one of those uniquely difficult things for American Christians because we are, by nature, a rebellious people. We were built on... on the foundations of revolution and uh, liberty and our, our own ideas and our independence. And, and this is kind of who we are. When we talk about end times events, we also, as Western Christians, have a bit of a handicap. See, the church at Thessalonica, who Paul was writing to in First Thessalonians, chapter 4, as we talked about last week, chapter 5, as we'll talk about this week, the church in Thessalonica, like most churches throughout history since the beginning of the church at Pentecost, faced tremendous opposition, persecution, and suffering for their faith. They were persecuted greatly for their faith. Right now, I was reading an article just today that was expressing that Christianity is, in fact, the most persecuted religion on earth right now. And it is true. When you look at what's happening over in the Middle East, when you see what's going on in China, when you understand what's happening in the Philippines, you, with, with, with Islam and its great push right now, we must understand that in most parts of the world, it's not like it is here. Christianity here is very unique. Many of us perhaps have seen the famous picture of the Roman Colosseum with Christians on crosses burning in the background as the rest pray in a circle with hungry lions that appear ready to devour them. This is a, a fairly uh, well-known picture. Some of you may have it in your Bible. Some of you may have it hanging on your walls. I don't know. Some of you may have it on a t-shirt. But this picture 
reflects in many ways the legacy of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not one of external peace and prosperity, regardless of what the big megachurch pastors try to tell you. The legacy of Christianity is one of violent death at the hands of angry men. The hands of people that don't want the truth. The, the legacy of Christianity is the example that was given by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as He hung on the cross, as He was lashed for doing nothing, as He was bruised and beaten, not for His own wrong, but for the wrongs of you and I, as He hung on the cross bleeding, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is the legacy of Christianity. And it's hard for us in this country to understand that, to grasp that concept. I don't wake up every morning wondering if I'm going to be found out and killed for my faith. I don't, when I go door knocking, take my life into my hands, thinking that maybe I'm going to come to a door one day where someone's just going to hate my message so much they're going to kill me. I don't have to wonder if I'm going to come home from the store to find my house burned and my children killed for their faith. In fact, it's my right in this country to walk to someone's door, to knock on it, and if they open the door, to, to tell them what I'd like to tell them. It's my right, if I desire, to go down to the park to engage people in conversation to, to tell them that they need a Savior. I can do that, and I am protected by law. As such, you and I will really struggle throughout our whole lives, uh, unless things change in this country, which they might, you and I will struggle to fully appreciate the hope that Paul was trying to express when he was teaching on the rapture. The expectation that must have been in the hearts of these Thessalonian believers as they thought about the day prior to the great wrath of God being poured out when they would be graciously and mercifully removed from this world. What a blessing that must have been to them. What hope that must have laid in store for them. The suffering of the tribulation will be like un, will be unlike anything that we have seen in history or known in history. If wicked kings and wicked religious leaders throughout history could do such damage to God's people, imagine what the Antichrist, a man filled with the power of Satan himself, will do to those who believe on Jesus' name, will do to those who call themselves God's people in Israel. The rapture is the church's hope that we will not face the tribulation of those days. Now, for we who have never faced true tribulation and have no real concept of suffering for our faith, we cannot relate entirely to the relief that accompanies that promise. But for the majority of Christians throughout the ages, the rapture of the church out of this world is a teaching that has provided the blessed comfort to the afflicted that they have longed for. Now, we've established the reality of the rapture. We talked about that last week as Paul spoke in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the fact that, that we will one day be taken out of this world. But what we have not discussed yet is the timing of the rapture. And that's the question that I would like us to, by and large, answer this evening to give you some insight into when the rapture will take place. This is a debated issue. And I'm not inherently going to settle the debate this evening. The reason why it's so important is because there are many theories within the Christian world concerning when the rapture will occur. 
Many of these theories have very good points and have a lot of scripture that seem to back them up. And it can be very difficult even for the, the well-learned Christian to discern between these various teachings as to when the rapture will occur. What you should see by the t- end of our time together today, however, is that as far as our method of biblical interpretation is concerned, there is only one theory, we might say, that fits. There's only one that is in line with everything that we have said already. And please note how I mentioned that. Because we laid the foundation for our teaching on biblical eschatology, on end times events, with messages that talked about how we interpret the Bible. The reason why I'm going to come to the conclusion that I'm going to come to tonight as pertaining to when the rapture is, as I've already presented it throughout the several weeks, is because of how I interpret the Bible. The reason why other people come to other conclusions is because of how they interpret the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all right. Someone's wrong. Someone's right. I've presented the case why I believe the method of interpretation, literal, grammatical, historical, contextual method of interpretation, brought into then a framework of what we might call dispensations, the different that there is a difference between the church uh, as Christ's bride and national Israel as God's elect people. If you believe in a literal, grammatical, contextual, historical interpretation of the Bible, and you believe that God has a separate plan for the church than for Israel, that they're two distinct people groups with two plans, then you will come to a similar conclusion to what we will present this evening. And that's what I am encouraging you to come to as a conclusion based upon what I have presented thus far. Now, we cannot hope to discuss all of the views of the rapture, but I would like to discuss the primary ones. The ones that, now, there are always spurious views. You've got, you know, people that don't believe in in heaven, don't believe in hell, don't believe in millennium, all of these sorts of things that that come into the picture, and some of those are becoming very prevalent views today. However, I'm going to stick to those views that have generally been understood throughout the ages in the Orthodox Church as to the rapture itself. And we're going to begin, we'll, we'll begin at the farthest from what I believe is correct, and we'll kind of move toward our position as the last one that we'll present before we apply. And the first one that we're going to present is the post-tribulation rapture theory. The post-tribulation rapture theory. Each one of these, I'll put up a timeline that, Lord willing, will help you get a visual idea of what's going on. We see the cross. That's when Jesus died. And then after Jesus died, beginning at Pentecost, we have what's called the church age that began. That is the age where Jesus Christ was no longer working, where God was no longer working through Israel and having them a city set on a hill to be rightly related to God so that they could show others how to be rightly related to God. And he began working through the church made up of not just Jews, but Gentiles, of people of every nation, of people of every tongue, working through this body to bring the gospel to the world. We might say this is the transition from the age of the law to the age of grace. Now, in the church age, the post-tribulation rapture theory believes that the church will go through the tribulation and will be raptured 
at the end of the tribulation at what we would call the second coming proper or the second advent of Jesus Christ. Within this view, the Christian church will be on earth for the duration of the tribulation. We will face the wrath of Antichrist. We will be present as the wrath of God is poured out upon mankind. And then at the end of the tribulation, the church will be raptured. We'll meet the Lord in the air. Jesus will continue to descend until his feet touch the Mount of Olives, at which time he will not just redeem the church, but he'll redeem, uh, as Revelation describes it, Israel. And he will judge the wicked and the millennium will begin. The post-tribulational argument inherently rejects the distinctions between the church and Israel as a whole. We're all going to go through it. There's really no difference. God doesn't have a special plan for Israel. This is just the last seven years for the earth. This is judgment. The church is going to be a part of it. We're going to have to deal with everything that Antichrist throws against us. And God's really, he was done with Israel at the cross when they rejected him there. They also uh, do and must, if, if you recall our teaching on the seven weeks, they must deny that Daniel's 70 week, 70th week is yet to come. Or they must spiritualize it saying that it is for the church, it's not actually for national Israel. So these are some of the, the, the concessions that those who believe in a post-tribulational rapture must make simply by the foundational interpretation of Scripture that they have to have in order to come to this conclusion. Now, their primary arguments are twofold. Let me present those to you. First, the post-tribulation rapture believer, thinker, argues that the church has been promised tribulation. And therefore, we should expect to go through what the Bible calls the tribulation. Now, they're correct that the Bible has indeed promised the church tribulation, hasn't it? Consider with me Matthew 24, verses 9 through 11. This is not speaking to the church. This is speaking through Israel. However, they would believe it's speaking to the church. Jesus speaking here, he says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. Now, to post-tribulation thinking, as Jesus Christ is speaking here, he's speaking to those who would form the church. Now, as we interpret this scripture, we recognize that Jesus Christ was speaking immediately after the disciples asked a very specific question, which was, what will happen at the coming of the age? The come, at, at the end of this age. That was spurred on by Jesus looking at the temple and saying, this temple will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. We see that as very Jewish in context. The entire teaching there is very Jewish in context. The, the post-tribulation thinker does not. So, we would not see in this passage Jesus speaking to the church, but rather to the... However, he did promise the church tribulation as well. John 16.33, Jesus Christ speaking to those who would be his disciples, and he says these this. He says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There is tribulation promised to the church. And the post-tribulational thinker says, God has promised us tribulation. There's a time in the scriptures called the tribulation, or a time of great tribulation. They must be one in the same. 
but perhaps you can follow my train of logic this evening as you see that those links aren't necessarily valid. Just because we have been promised to be to experience suffering doesn't necessarily mean we've been promised to experience that time of suffering. And may I, may I help you as to, and we've talked about it a little bit already, as to where that idea might come from, where that link might come from? Well, we mentioned we in, in the United States don't face a lot of tribulation. And so that might be where this came from. The fact that as I sit in my office, in my house, which is heated, in my nice neighborhood where I could go around and knock on every door and tell them they need to uh, believe in Christ and they'll very kindly say no thank you or they'll listen and, and take my literature. I say, well, Lord, you've promised me tribulation and I'm not going through it. So you must be talking about the church going through the great tribulation because that's the time when tribulation comes up. But remember, let's broaden our horizons here. Let's think of the majority of the church throughout Christian history reading the words you will have true in this earth in this world you will have tribulation you know what they'd say yeah right here right now I've got it we're, we're meeting in a dark room after everyone else has gone to bed so that they don't catch us and arrest us we're, we're trying very subtly to tell our family that they need to learn of Christ because if we come out direct and tell them, they'll turn us into the authorities and we'll be beheaded. This is the experience that the majority of Christianity has faced for the last 2,000 years. So it's a very rare thing, a rare privilege that we have in this nation that we don't necessarily relate to these words that Jesus Christ has said. And so we should not necessarily inherently believe that Jesus' promise of tribulation means we'll go through the great tribulation in the end times. And I would argue that that does a bit of injustice to the text, in fact. Now, the second main argument of the post-tribulation thinker is concerning the teaching of the resurrection and the second coming. All throughout the Old Testament, we see one event that is called the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, as we look into the New Testament, we see a time when Jesus will return, and it's always painted as one event. And that event in the Old Testament is called the Day of the Lord. This will accompany the first resurrection, or the resurrection of the saints, and it will also accompany Jesus Christ returning to judge the wicked. Now, the Bible does teach very clearly that there is a resurrection at the end of the tribulation. Revelation chapter 20 verse 4 says this, I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither, ha neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Here we see, following the seven years, but prior to the millennial reign, a resurrection and judgment of the dead. Daniel verses one, uh, 12, verses 1 and 2 substantiate this as well. It says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, 
even to the same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there is a time when the dead will rise after the time of trouble that had never since been known in the world. It is further asserted by the post-tribulation thinker that the second coming of Christ, because it is presented as one event, must therefore happen at the same moment. But again, that's a link that's not necessarily valid. To say that there is a time in the day of the Lord does not mean it has to be a 24-hour day. It is the day of the Lord is not presented in Scripture as a physical day as much as, as it is a time period, an event, the time when the Lord will consummate all things. John 5, verses 28 and 29 says this, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Here we have a verse that talks about resurrection. It seems like there's only one resurrection presented here, doesn't it? But as you dig into scriptures, do you know what you find? The resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation are separated by 1,000 years, by the millennial reign. Believers are resurrected before the millennial reign. Unbelievers are left in the grave until after the millennium is over, at which time they will be resurrected, brought before the great white throne of judgment, and then sent to the lake of fire following Antichrist, Satan, and the false prophet as hell is cast in the lake of fire. So what we cannot understand or believe is that just because prophecy paints two events as happening in conjunction that there's no space between them. We talked about this in interpretation. Remember the hills of prophecy? That when a prophet looks and he sees the future as the Lord presented it to him, he saw the highlights almost as if he was standing upon a mountain and he saw the other mountain peaks. He saw the first resurrection and he saw the second resurrection and it looked like they were right next to another in his prophecy. But what he, what the Lord didn't show him is the valley between the two mountain peaks. The 1,000 years of the millennium between them. And we put scripture together and we find that the resurrection unto damnation, the resurrection of those who are not saved, doesn't happen until after the millennium. So again, the post-tribulational thinker is putting some things together that aren't inherently valid. There is no interpretive requirement that the second coming being referred to is one moment and only the moment Jesus touches the earth. And there is nothing in Scripture that hinders the possibility that the day of the Lord is an event that begins with the rapture of the church and then seven years later culminates with Jesus Christ's feet touching the Mount of Olives. If this is all kind of... What's, what are you talking about, Pastor, about all of this prophecy stuff? We'll get there. We're going to get there as we continue through prophecy, as we continue teaching. So bear with me, and then if you'd like, once I've finished presenting the whole, you can listen to these online again and kind of get the feel for what is being said. So though there are some verses that would seem to indicate the post-tribulation rapture position... As we continue, we'll see that there, there are elements of the rapture that contradict this understanding. The second theory I'd like to present to you is one that is becoming very popular today in conservative Christian circles, and it is called the pre-wrath rapture theory. They say that there is a difference between the tribulation and wrath. 
that we have never been presented, that it's never been presented in the scripture that we will not face the tribulation, but it has been presented that we will not face the wrath of God. And so they say that we will be raptured prior to the wrath of God being poured out, which would give or take be about the time that Armageddon begins, um, about the time that last final battle, about the time of those final um, events, after certainly after the majority of the tribulation. And this is becoming a very popular theory, and the reason why is because it solves a lot of the questions between the, the pre-tribulation rapture theory, which has some gaps, and the post-tribulation rapture theory, which has some gaps, and the mid-tribulation rapture theory is kind of, we'll talk about that one next, not too many people hold to that. And so this pre-wrath rapture theory seems to answer a lot of those questions. They believe a good deal of the same things as the post-trib folks. They believe that we will go through the tribulation, that we'll go through the seal and the trumpet judgments, and, and that we will be on the earth for those things. And, and they have some good valid arguments and some scriptures that back it up. Um, we won't go through all of them necessarily this evening. Then they say that since the Lord has saved us or has promised to spare us from the wrath that is to come, that we will be taken out of the world prior to the pouring out of the Lord's wrath and the final judgment upon this world, but that we'll go through the rest. And this theory is very compelling. I, I enjoy it very much. However, it creates a huge interpretive problem with our understanding of Daniel 70 weeks and Daniel 9 verses 24 through 27. In order, well, let me, let me read a few verses and then we'll talk about it a little bit more. Revelation chapter 6 verse 17 says this, For the great day of his wrath is come, who shall be able to stand? See, the, the pre-wrath rapture, what it demands is that you don't, again, you don't see the separation between the church and Israel. It also demands that you do not believe that Daniel's 70th week is going to be focused on Israel. Now, Revelation chapter 6 says that the, the day of, of God's wrath has come. This is very early in the tribulation if you take Revelation chronologically, which means in order to believe the pre-wrath rapture theory, you, you cannot take Revelation chronologically. You have to assume that Revelation is teaching simply a nebulous of what's going to happen at the time without giving you a timeline of when it's going to happen. And you must do that or else Revelation chapter 6 is way too early for the wrath of God to come if we're supposed to be out of here before his wrath, but we're still somehow supposed to go through the tribulation. And so there's there's a problem there. And then again, I mentioned there's a problem with Daniel's 70th week. If the first 483 years of that prophecy were fulfilled literally, the first 69 years, and for those of you that weren't here for my preaching on this, I apologize, but I can't rehash it all. The sermons are online if you'd like to listen to them. For those first 483 years, God's promise of the... of what was going to happen was fulfilled to national Israel exclusively. The church wasn't even around. But the pre-wrath rapture, the post-tribulation, and even the mid-trib rapture position demand that we are a part of Daniel's 70th week and that Daniel's 70th week pertains as much to us as it does to Israel. And there's something that just doesn't make sense interpretively about that. So that is that is the reason 
particularly why the pre-wrath rapture theory does not hold up for me. Because though I understand the compelling nature of the fact that we will go through the tribulation but not the wrath, um, we speak of uh, issues, as we'll see with the mid-tribulation theory as well, about the final trump and when that final trump will be and, and some of this teaching. That's all very vague. And what I believe the scriptures are very clear about is the, the 70 weeks of Daniel that he has promised for Israel that that 70th week will be for Israel and that the wrath of God is said to start in Revelation chapter 6 at the very least. And if we believe that Revelation is chronological, which I do, there's simply no way to fit the pre-wrath rapture theory into that timetable. Now, the third theory is the mid-tribulation rapture theory. As I said, this one does not hold uh, too many people anymore. Um, there's just not a lot of evidence for it. The mid-tribulation theory is the final one that, that we'll cover before we cover what, what I believe is, is correct, the pre-tribulational -trib, pre theory. This is, is fairly rare. It, it's strongly dependent upon the fact that the last recorded trumpet in the book of Revelation is right around the midpoint with the final of the seven trumpet judgments. The final of the seven trumpet judgments um, is about that midpoint. It almost ushers in the midpoint of the tribulation. And so that is, is what is very uh, important to their understanding here. Paul teaches this in 1 Corinthians 15.52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. He's preaching on the rapture here. And he says that there's coming a moment in the twinkling of an eye when we will be raptured, when the dead will be raised, and that, uh, that's what the changed means, that we'll receive new resurrected bodies. And he says it will happen at the last trump. And so somebody reads the last trump, they go and they flip through Revelation, they say, well, when's the last trump? And they say, okay, the last trump I see in Revelation on earth is the one that happens right around the midpoint of the tribulation. There, it's settled. It's done. Mid-tribulation rapture. Three and a half years, we're raptured. The other three and a half years are not for us. This seventh trump is seen in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. It says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So they say this is the final recorded trumpet, right about the half midway point. That settles it for me. However, the term last trump in the Greek does not inherently indicate that this trumpet is the last in chronology or in point of time. It simply indicates that it's the last in sequence. In other words, when Paul says it will be the last trump, he's not inherently saying it's the final trump that is given in the Bible. He's simply saying it's the final trump of God's particular plan, whatever plan that might be. We would interpret that within our range of meaning to be the, the plan of God for his church. That he will take his church when the age is complete. And though perhaps you say, well, that's kind of tenuous, Pastor. You're using the, the possible meaning of a word to, to um, dissuade us from a theory. Let me just say this as well. 
the trumpet of Revelation 11 is not the final trumpet given in prophecy. It's the last trumpet given in Revelation. But in Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and 31, Jesus Christ teaching on those final seven years, and he says this, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is when Jesus Christ is, is descending after the seven years of tribulation. It says, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So if the last trumpet is indeed the last trumpet being the church's call, then we need to get back to the post-tribulation rapture theory because that's when the last trumpet is actually sounded according to Scripture. So the mid-tribulation rapture theory doesn't really hold much water and that's why not too many people hold to it today because there's just really not a lot of evidence for it. Now, that brings us to the theory that I believe is correct. We've talked for several weeks now about Daniel's 70 weeks, about the church working with, uh, within that gap between the 69th week, which ended um, approximately at Jesus' triumphal entry, or perhaps Jesus' baptism, depending on who you talk to, and the 70th week, which, as far as prophecy is concerned, we prove has yet to come if we are taking that prophecy literally. If we're not spiritualizing it, that last week, there has never been a week like it in history. It has not yet come. Now, this is the theory which we, we, talk, we have talked about at length. We believe that the rapture of the church is the next event on God's prophetic timetable. After the rapture of the church, there will be a reinitiation of God's program with Israel. So, God's program with the church, or Israel, ended and the church began. We believe that God's program with the church will then end before God reinitiates his program with Israel. The 70th week of Daniel, the final week, God's final dealings with his, his people, national Israel. The people that he has a covenant with through Abraham, through David. We believe the church to be distinct from national Israel and believe that God's promises to national Israel must still come to pass as God said they would all throughout the Old Testament prophets. When we looked in Ezekiel, and you recall the prophecies in Ezekiel, I've mentioned it several times, where Ezekiel took the stick and he wrote on one side of that stick, Judah, and the other side, Israel. And God said, put that stick together. And miraculously, that stick came together into one stick. And God said, Israel and Judah will become a nation once again. That has not happened yet since the days of Ezekiel. If we are going to take the Bible literally and we're going to take that prophecy literally, then it's going to have to happen sometime, folks. God is going to have to redeem his people. God is going to have to bring about national salvation for national Israel. And since it hasn't happened yet, that is why we believe it's yet to happen in the future. Because we are not going to spiritualize the Old Testament and pretend like God was kind of talking to Israel, but more or less just actually talking to the church. There's nothing that would lend that to us. God said this through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 30, verses 3 through 9. I'm sorry, it's going to be a little small. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah. It says both there. Saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. 
And these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail? And all faces turned unto paleness. Alas, he continues, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It shall even, it, it, it is, excuse me, even the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck, and will burst thy bonds. And strangers shall no more serve themselves of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. This is a promise both to Israel and to Judah of something special that was going to happen in the future, of God's salvation. This hasn't happened yet for Israel since the days of Jeremiah. And notice it's called the days of Jacob's trouble. It's not called the days of the church's trouble, or the believer's trouble, or the just man's trouble, or even just Israel's trouble. It's Jacob's trouble. Even those who believe that the church has replaced Israel, that Israel has become the church, would have a hard time justifying why he uses Jacob there, Israel's former name, physical name, instead of Israel, the spiritual name that God gave to him. It would be very hard to justify how Jacob becomes the church, even if we believe that, which we don't, but we believe that Israel became the church. Second, the time is specifically intended to break the bonds that have been placed upon the nation by their enemies so that they will serve only the Lord as their God and King. These are very important distinctives because as we enter the New Testament, there is never a time where the church is described in this manner. There is never a time when the church is called Jacob. There is no New Testament anticipation of the church collective needing corporate judgment or chastening to be brought back to the Lord. There is never a time when the church is said to be under bondage to a nation or a people which must be broken from off their necks. On the contrary... We have spoken about the fact that the church does present a plan for Israel. Romans 9-11, through 11, Paul says God has not forsaken his people Israel. That God still does have a plan for them, and if we interpret the Bible literally, grammatically, historically, and contextually, this is what we come to as a conclusion. Now the church, far from needing collective judgment, stands before God justified. We are pure in the eyes of Almighty God. Certainly God has promised us tribulation, but that tribulation has never been linked to disobedience, has it? God's promises of tribulation to the church are rooted in the fact that we obey God, that we do what he's asked us to do. Consider 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 2-4. through 4. Paul says, And I sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto, for verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation even as it came to pass, and ye know. So the tribulation that Paul says the church will face is because we're doing what is right. 
because we're obeying the Lord, because we're serving Him with all our hearts, because we won't compromise our understanding of God's Word for the sake of convenience. And yet, the tribulation of the final days is presented as a time of chastening of God's people back to Him. Well, how is that? how does that reconcile? If the tribulation is supposed to be because we're serving the Lord, then why all of a sudden will we be in tribulation because we're not serving the Lord? Well, that's because it's not the church. It's Israel. Who does need tribulation to be brought back to the Lord? Because they refused to serve the Lord. They rejected His Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. So when we see the distinctions, these things make sense. Friends, the tribulation that God has promised the church is very different in, tri- in character than the tribulation God has promised Israel. On the contrary, Paul has promised in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 that we have been delivered from the wrath that is to come. Paul has promised in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 that God has not appointed us unto wrath but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I've tried to give you a 500 page book in 35 minutes tonight. There's a lot more that could be said on this, but I trust that the distinctions that were drawn out and perhaps walking through the various theories and seeing what they present will be a help to you. I know this is more teachy and I don't just want to leave you with teachiness. So you turn to 1 Thessalonians 5 and I asked you to turn there for a reason. Please look with me if you would. If you're still there, if you're not there, please turn with me again as I know it's been a long time since I've asked you to be there. And we're going to apply this evening three points from 1 Thessalonians 5. This is how Paul applied his rapture teaching. And I'd like us to apply it as he did this evening. Look with me and we'll read verses 1 through 11. Paul says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, he says, comfort yourselves together and edify one another even as also ye do. It's my contention that the pre-tribulation rapture theory is unique in that we are fully persuaded that the Lord's return is imminent. In other words, it could happen at any moment. And Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 that because we know what is to come, even though we don't know when it will happen, we can't set a date, but we know it's coming, we ought to live our lives in light of it. And there's three points that he presents here as to how we live our lives in light of it. The first thing he says is that we need to be sober, that we don't sleep like those that are in darkness, but rather we live in the day that we have been given. You know what's coming. You know it is coming. 
You know the tribulation of those days. You know that you will be taken out of this world, but you know that it could come at any moment. And as we spoke of last week, is your life being lived in light of Christ's imminent return? Are you a believer? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you have, are you living in light of the reality that one day you'll stand before God? Are you serious about your Christian walk? You know, Christianity is not just something that we staple onto our lives for Sunday. It's not, you know, we don't, we don't put our Christianity in a box. We live it. 24-7, 365. It is not just a part of our life, Christianity, our belief in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He did for us and our desire to serve Him because of what He did is literally why we live. Have you ever thought about why Jesus didn't just rapture you the moment you got saved? Those of you that have been around for a while have heard me ask that question. If the purpose of you being on this earth, if, if, if the purpose of your salvation is simply that, salvation, if, if God's purpose for you ended at salvation, then He would have just raptured you right away. But your purpose didn't end when you got saved. As a matter of fact, your purpose began when you got saved. Now you have the privilege and the responsibility of taking what you are and reflecting it to a world that needs what you have. So let's be serious, folks. Let's make God and His Word a priority. Be serious about your Christian walk because Christ is coming. Number two, he said in verse 11, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together. Comfort one another. You know, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer this week. Found out Monday morning, or Monday evening, I guess, when she said, I have breast cancer. That's not a fun thing to hear. It's not an easy thing to hear. I still consider her fairly young. I, I, I don't, we're not sure. Obviously, she's, she's, uh, there's lots of road ahead. Um, Many women are just fine having survived breast cancer and such. But this passage gives me comfort. And this passage gives her comfort as well. We all suffer. We all struggle. We all have difficulties. Difficult weeks, difficult trials, difficult temptations. We hurt. We get ill. And it, it stems from a sin-sick world within which we live, sinful choices, sinful people around us, uh, just the effects of sin and the curse. But there's comfort because there's coming a day when we'll be changed. There's comfort because it will end. And as we sang tonight, it's not death to die. There's coming a day when, as for, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, mortality will be swallowed up in life. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Mortality will be swallowed up in life. 2 Corinthians 5.5 5. It's coming, folks. Comfort one another. And finally, number three, edify one another. That word literally means to build each other up. Make a phone call to a fellow church member. Hey, I was thinking of you this week. How you doing? Well, not not real well. Okay, well, let me just remind you that that there's a time and a season. Let me just help you get through this time by reminding you 
that there's coming a day when the Lord will catch us away or when we will pass from this life to the next and we'll be with him forever. I remind you that the best is yet to come. We can build one another up in the Lord. I don't know where you're going to lay out on all of your understanding of, of biblical eschatology. I believe I've presented a case for what we believe here at Legacy Baptist Church. But wherever you end up, make sure that it compels you in the right direction. To be serious about your Christian walk. To comfort one another. And to edify one another. As we've been commanded. Let's pray together.